0: justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government.
1: Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101, the court's hard at work,
0: and so are we. A quick reminder, please take our listener survey to let us know what you like, what you don't like, and what you want to hear more of during our episodes. You can find a link to the survey on our Twitter feed and in the notes to this episode.
1: We'll start off the show this week with some good news. Justice Clarence Thomas was released from the hospital and is back participating in oral arguments, albeit remotely for now. At any rate, we continue to wish him a speedy recovery, and we look forward to when he can be back in person on the bench. We do have one order to talk about today. The Supreme Court granted a stay sought by the Biden administration of a preliminary injunction barring the Navy from taking adverse actions against Navy SEALs and other special warfare operators for being unvaccinated for religious reasons. In other words, the government is now free to consider respondents' vaccination status in making deployment, assignment, and other operational decisions. Zach, how about cert grants? Yeah, there were three new cert grants this week. Uh, the justices agreed to hear Cruz v. Arizona, a case involving a death row inmate. And they also agreed to hear Andy Warhol Foundation, Inc. v. Goldsmith, which is an important and interesting copyright case. N.G.C. Lisa Blatt is representing uh, Goldsmith in this case, uh, As our listeners may recall, Lisa is an old friend of the show, and she's argued more cases in front of the Supreme Court than any other woman in history. So I think this will be a a case to watch, and I hope it doesn't affect your meme-making, GC.
0: (laughs) Well, it's always great to hear Lisa Blatt argue she is a powerhouse. And last up, a case I'm very excited about, the justices agreed to hear National Pork Producers v. Ross, which involves a fascinating issue about whether a California law that forbids the sale of pork if the pigs aren't grown according to state standards violates the Dormant Commerce Clause. Now, the Dormant Commerce Clause is a doctrine derived from Congress's power over interstate commerce that says states are not allowed to unduly burden interstate commerce. Now, the line... From pigs on farms to pork on store shelves is not straight. It's more like a web, the practical effect of which is that most pig farmers, no matter where they are in the country, will have to comply with California's regulations to stay in business. So the case attracted a lot of immediate attention a while ago because the law is likely to raise the prices of bacon substantially. And so you heard it here first. I have dubbed the case the bacon case.
1: Well, you heard it here first, folks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't like the tone of uh, derisive sarcasm in your voice, there, Zach.
1: N- n- no derisive sarcasm, GC. I just you heard it here first. Uh, <laughs> but I will say, I, in your defense, GC, anything that raises the
0: price of bacon, I'm firmly uh, opposed to. Oh, agreed. <laughs> now on to oral arguments. Uh, we'll briefly mention two. Zach, you want to start with ledur Yeah, I will. Uh, this one is Ledur v. Union Pacific
1: Railroad. The issue is whether a train that makes a temporary stop in a rail yard as part of its unitary journey in interstate commerce is "quote in use" on a railroad's line and thus subject to the Locomotive Inspection Act. It sounds boring, right?
0: Uh, apologies to our train aficionados out there. Nothing like Paul's graph and fireworks and proximate <laughs> cause.
1: <cars. laughs> Yes, yes, of course. But the reason I mention this case is that there is a fascinating moment from oral arguments that's been making the rounds on Twitter for the past few days. Uh, Justice Breyer invoked the little engine that could and had a a fascinating exchange, as (laughs) I think only really he can, uh, with counsel about the little engine that could. Uh, We'll play that clip for you now.
0: When I was a child, there was a book called The Little Engine That Could, (laughs) And uh, (laughs) this engine uh, uh, got to a hill, uh, and it goes up the hill, and suddenly it stops because it can't go further. But it thinks, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, and eventually it does. Okay? Now, let's take the period, I think I can.
1: Uh, There it is,
0: not moving. And uh, on your view, here it is. Uh, You say— on page fifteen sixteen is moving under its own power in active service. Uh-uh. Yes. Not the little engine that could. Not during those periods. He was saying, I think I can. I think I can. So do you really mean — I mean, that's the same as a lunch question, really. It's yep. just uh, —
1: uh, No, I, think, <laughs> I actually think that it's quite different, Justice Breyer. It
0: FRA's is? own definition of an of a,
1: a active locomotive movement, not a dead movement, is the application of tractive power. The little engine
0: that could is applying tractive power, even if it's having a hard time applying getting — Applying tractive, tractive power. You mean its engines turning?
1: You know, GC, I don't think we'll get those types of questions and exchanges <laughs> once Justice Breyer leaves the court.
0: No, no, we won't. Well, I also wanted to briefly mention Torres versus Texas Department of Public Safety. This is actually a really interesting case in some respects. It involves the question of whether Congress can abrogate a state's sovereign immunity under its Article I war powers. That is interesting. Uh, what about opinions, GC? Well, we have just one this week. It's Badgerow versus Walters. This was an 8-to-1 decision by Justice Kagan that considered when federal courts have jurisdiction to grant arbitration petitions. Now, the Federal Arbitration Act allows federal courts to grant various arbitration petitions, to enforce arbitration, to grant, to vacate or uh, confirm an arbitral award. Uh, And these are all found in various sections of the act. Now, the authorization to grant relief that the act gives federal courts doesn't itself create federal jurisdiction. That either exists or doesn't independently. One of the sections of the act, Section 4, instructs courts to look at the underlying dispute to see if that dispute would create jurisdiction. But other provisions don't include that instruction. The court held here that where the instruction is missing from the text, courts can only look at the petition itself to see if it has jurisdiction. Justice Breyer dissented, and here we get such a great view of that old, almost anachronistic approach to judging that characterized the more activist judiciary of the past. He said that judges should not, quote, simply look at a statute's literal words, but also at the statute's purposes and the likely consequences of our interpretation. In his view, the majority's adherence to the text created complexity and frustrated what he thought were the overarching purposes of the act. So he would have essentially rewritten all the sections uh, that did not include the look-through language to include it.
1: Well, we can only hope uh, that that is indeed an anachronistic view, and that approach to judging uh, will be a
0: thing of the past. Agreed. Now, moving into our interview for this week, we are joined by a longtime friend of the show who happens to be, in addition to the king of the amicus brief, an expert in the confirmation process, which is very good because we ask him a bunch of questions about Judge Jackson's confirmation hearings.
1: We're pleased to be joined today by Ilya Shapiro, the author of Supreme Disorder and the senior lecturer and executive director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. Ilya, welcome to the show.
2: Good to be on, and I, I should clarify I'm on leave from that Georgetown position, the continuing purgatory, the investigation into my uh, poorly phrased tweet, as it were, and there's really not much more to report, but hopefully I'll be reinstated soon.
1: Well, we're very glad you were able to join us today, and we did want to take uh, take our time together today to talk a little bit about last week's confirmation hearings, uh, to get your thoughts and see how you think they went, where you think we're headed, Uh, and just get your take on the the process overall.
2: Well, um, it was largely much ado about nothing. Um, The hearings have long become kabuki theater. That is, everyone goes through their assigned roles. The senators of the party of the president ask uh, softball questions, trying to make the nominee look uh, nice and smart. The opposing senators uh, try to ask uh, tough questions to score political points, and most importantly, have a B-roll for their next re-election campaign or their bid for president uh, in, in this in many <laughs> cases. Uh, and the nominee tries to talk a lot without saying very much at all, uh, which is why in my book, Supreme Disorder, I ultimately conclude that the hearings do more damage to our public discourse, kind of there's more muck thrown around than any benefit in terms of learning anything about the nominee or the process about how the Supreme Court decides cases but I think we're, we're stuck with these hearings uh, regardless and and uh, last week's hearings for for kBJ for for judge Jackson um, kind of followed a, a, a trend uh, I don't think we learned that much about either her judicial philosophy or or anything else and I don't think anybody any senators mind was changed about whether they're going to vote for or against her given the Democrats control of the Senate slim as it is you know 50. with with, uh, Vice President Harris ready to break a tie. She will be confirmed uh, very narrowly, but it's going to be one of those very narrow margins, I think, uh, as we've now gotten used to.
0: On the topic of her judicial philosophy, uh, several senators tried to pin her down. In the past, of course, she said she doesn't really have one. This time she said she has a methodology, and then she sort of gave a few pans to... Uh, original public meaning. What did you make of all of that? Did we get any glimpse of a real judicial philosophy?
2: I don't think so. Uh, so what we got, as you said, the methodology. Her methodology isn't isn't a philosophy. It's basically what every judge does. That is, she says she clears her mind so she doesn't have any bias, looks at the party's arguments, looks at the facts of the case, and applies the relevant law. I mean, that's, that is not a philosophy. That That is... Uh, what what the a a very basic definition of what any judge in any circumstance does uh, the, the the greatest that she said about philosophy was that uh, originalism original public meaning uh, is the dominant method now she she name checked Justice Scalia and said that this is has to be considered of course there are other tools uh, in her toolkit. And um, it's interesting that she felt the need to state uh, so centrally uh, originalism as uh, a prime uh, uh, method of, of constitutional interpretation. Uh, I guess that means that this is the norm now. This is what people have come to expect. That's an important thing to set out, but I don't think it says anything about how she will eventually decide cases uh, where the text uh, doesn't dictate explicitly uh, how a judge is supposed to rule.
1: Ilya, what do you make of the questioning surrounding her record as a federal district court judge in sentencing uh, child pornography offenders? What do you think about that line of questioning?
2: I think there was um, too much made of it. That is, um, for example, uh, enhancements for using computers was was part of this. But it turns out these days, of course, everybody uses computers. It's not like we have uh, child porn uh, uh, convictions where people are using mail order and, and hard copies, and, and that's exceedingly rare. And so um, something that is standard shouldn't really be an enhancement. And so it's it's uh, normal uh, in, in all prosecutions these days to, to do what she does uh, with that. It could be the case that she was somewhat lenient in certain types of cases. That could be the case more generally about her sentencing. I don't think it's anything specific to Uh, sex offenders. But in any event, that that doesn't say much about her judicial philosophy, how she interprets even criminal law uh, statutes. There's a lot of discretion uh, given to district judges in those kinds of sentencing decisions. And from what I've read, she's not really, uh, you know, some sort of huge outlier uh, among the federal judiciary as a whole.
0: Were there any lines of questioning from senators that rose above the Kabuki theater and actually got information that you think was uh, really useful or interesting?
2: Well, the the admission that originalism is central to judicial interpretation, that's uh, important. That means that, for example, in the future, when there's a Republican nominee who self-proclaims to be an originalist, uh, Democratic attacks on that will be uh, weak because you'll be able to just point to Judge Jackson, and, and she said the same thing uh when she disclaimed the use of foreign law, unlike her former boss, uh, the retiring Justice Breyer. That was um that was, I guess, important. A small, uh, minor point. Um, you know, I I didn't learn that much. It's not that she's you know, she's only written two appellate opinions and her district opinions were largely fact bound and and case bound. So um you know there's there's not that much uh, uh, to go on there and and uh, as as we just discussed the lines of questioning about uh sentencing of child pornography and 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 other related offenses um you know, perfectly valid line of questioning i don 't think there's anything uh, out of line in 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 doing that, but really is more much more about scoring political points for the for this fall's election than than actually derailing the the nomination or 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 learning anything so uh, no, I think this is this was largely largely the the pro forma uh, kabuki and allowed each side to make its arguments. The media to side with the Democrats as usual, and um, and away we go. But the you know the judicial nominations has historically been a winning issue for Republican candidates, and I think it will be again this fall when when senators will. Uh, And senatorial candidates will say, you know, what kind of judges do you want? Don't you want uh, uh, somebody to uh, to check uh, Joe Biden on his nominations? I think that's going to be an important issue politically again, but but not something that, uh, you know, that that we learned about this particular nominee.
1: What did you make of Lindsey Graham's line of questioning at the hearing? Ilya, was it just political grandstanding? Was he trying to make a larger point about the confirmation process? What did you make of Lindsey Graham's questioning?
2: Well, recall Senator Graham was the chairman for the Kavanaugh hearings. And he got really upset with his Democratic counterparts for how they behaved themselves. And so a large part of his, um, not even questioning, but commentary during his time uh, was to show that kind of double standard. He also went in a little bit about, um, he's, a, he's, a, he's an Air Force JAG, and uh, was a defense uh, side a jag for a while as well, and so said that he had no problem with uh, Judge Jackson when she was a public defender representing Guantanamo detainees, but was questioning why she was still uh, pushing, uh, supporting them, uh, whether as, a, uh, as their lawyer or as an, as an amicus, uh, when she was in private practice and was no, no longer required uh, to do so. Some, some interesting Uh, uh, some might say hair-splitting, some might say uh, indication of where she might side in terms of uh, her views on criminal process or or, or what have you. But Senator Graham historically has voted for almost all judicial uh, nominees, certainly all Supreme Court nominees. This might be the first time since he joined the Senate that he'll vote no, but I think he would be vote 53. That is, if it goes beyond Collins and Murkowski on the Republican side voting yes, uh, Graham would be the 53rd. And if he's a no, then that, that shows clearly that really, um, you know, the the norm has uh, on the Republican side has, has broken further. Uh, and they're going to match the Democrats for uh, just a party line opposition.
0: So Ilya, some liberal publications, uh, I think, disagreed with how you've characterized them as sort of standard kabuki theater. A couple of the phrases I've seen were uh, that Republican questioning was beyond the pale, uh, extremely aggressive, even racist undertones. Uh, what do you make of all that?
2: Um, well, they were they were no different than than what uh, Amy Coney Barrett faced. You know, she was attacked for purportedly being nominated to uh, take health care away from millions of people. She eventually voted. With the decision that that through throughout the challenge to Obamacare uh, last term, uh, certainly lesser than anything that Brett Kavanaugh faced, um, uh, the fact that uh, Ted Cruz asked about critical race theory, for example, I don't think that's beyond the pale. She answered that it you know, it plays no role in her in her judging, which is a fine answer to have. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't see anything that was. You know, they were they were they were the normal sorts of attacks of arguments that you would expect from senators of the uh of the opposing party. And yeah, it was kind of beside the point and, you know, not uh you know, getting in the in the normal muck of politics, which is why I think that these hearings really don't uh don't do much, are net negative for our, our discourse, but I don't think it was uh you know, out of bounds or, or, or inappropriate and as far as the the racial tinge goes. I mean, President Biden introduced that himself when he at the outset, he limited his pool of candidates by race and gender.
1: So, Elliot, you say these hearings are a net negative to the discourse, but at the same time, we're stuck with them. Is there any way to fix them going forward?
2: Well, it's not a, an issue of, of a broken down process. It's the fact that the, the product, the Supreme Court, is very important. And we're at the culmination of several trends where divergent interpretive theories map onto partisan preference or identification at a time when the parties are more ideologically sorted than at least the Civil War, if not ever. And so you're always going to get these tremendously politically fraught uh, set pieces when you have uh, one uh, of these nine seats, these precious, powerful seats Come vacant. There, there's no way to have an uncontroversial nominee, and you know, changing the rules of the questioning, or you know, having uh, uh, counsel ask questions rather than senators, or you know, fixing in Senate rules the number of days after a nomination where there have to be hearings, and the number of days after that that there's a vote. That's not going to change that uh, dynamic. Uh, for that matter, changing the size of the court, uh, introducing term limits, all of these reforms that get talked about uh, don't. Uh, changed the basic uh, dynamic where uh, the court is powerful, so people care about these seats, and Democrats and Republicans view the role of a judge and judicial philosophy very differently. So uh, fundamentally, the, the problem, the politicization is one of the product, and the only way to fix it, and this is a long-term, complicated, deep fix rather than anything Uh, Addressing the process is to uh, devolve power back to the states and the people, uh, enforce separation of power. So Congress is making more tough choices rather than punting everything into the executive branch agencies that then get sued um, and and ultimately making each one of these seats less important. Now, I'm not holding my breath. And of course, it took us decades to get to where we are, and it would take decades to unwind.
0: So, Ilya, let's say this uh, The vote on Ketanji Brown-Jackson uh, splits along partisan lines in the committee and then uh, in Congress. What's the procedure going forward here uh, for Democrats to get her confirmed?
2: So because it's a 50-50 Senate, the Judiciary Committee is evenly split. It's not 11-9 as it was for Barrett and Kavanaugh. So uh, that means if all of the Republicans vote no, if it's 12-12, Then Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, will have to use what's called a discharge petition, uh, which is not unprecedented. But the last time a Supreme Court nominee had to be discharged from the Judiciary Committee in that manner was 1853. Um, So but there is a process, bills that happens to bills from time to time that are that are tied in committee. Um, And so she'll be she'll be discharged. And then it goes to a vote on the Senate floor. Um, Probably, you know, the vote in committees happening uh, this coming Monday, April uh, 4th, so uh, th- there will be a discharge petition right after that. Uh, you'll have to eat up a lot of Senate floor time, but certainly before the Easter break, which is the Democrats' goal before, I think, that Sunday, that following Sunday, they- they're hoping to get out of town, um, and so there will be that vote. And um, you know it, whether it's 50-50 or 52-48, Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska are the most likely Republicans to vote vote. Uh, for her, um, she will. You know, not, you know, nothing came out that will change that that calculus that 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 everyone was expecting from the outset.
0: Well, Ilya, thanks for joining us. We'll spare you our usual "Which Supreme Court Justice would you chat with?" question because I think you've answered that several times in the past on the show. But thanks so much for joining us.
2: I will say one more thing, Giancarlo Carlo and Zach, and that's that my book, Supreme Disorder, um, is coming out in paperback uh, this July, and I just finished. Writing the epilogue, uh, the, the publisher says, I will have time to fill in the final exact uh, confirmation margin for Judge Jackson, whether she's you know, confirmed or, or not. But uh, there, there's a few as of this writing pieces there. So anyway, right now, your listeners can get the hardcover pretty cheap on Amazon and elsewhere if you go to SupremeDisorder.com. Uh, and this summer, you'll be able to, to get the updated paperback.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Ilya.
2: My pleasure. Good to be with you.
0: Zach? Are you ready for trivia? As ready as I'll ever be, GC. Well, you know that I grilled you last week, and we usually take turns, but I was inspired this week. We have the bacon case, and it made me think of all the other times that there have been breakfast food fights at SCOTUS. So, are you ready for breakfast at SCOTUS?
1: How about brunch? Can we make it brunch? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> Whatever, Zach, you do, you're not getting out of trivia, <laughs> all is right, the point. right, let's do it. <laughs> all right, number one, perhaps the most famous breakfast foods case is not at all remembered for the actual dispute that the court decided, but instead for a very famous footnote, which listed other sorts of cases where the rule of this particular case would not apply. What oh. was the case and what was the breakfast food product? <laughs>
1: I guess this is a breakfast food. Although, is it a food? I don't know. We need a definition. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think you're talking about uh, U.S. v. Caroline Products and its famous footnote 4. Correct. Uh, is uh, the, the reference to the footnote is what gave it
0: away. Correct. That footnote, the court explained uh, when rational basis review, the lowest standard of review, would not apply. Uh, what was the breakfast food at issue? Well, I take issue
1: with you calling it a breakfast food. Uh, I think it was actually uh, milk, uh, something called filled milk specifically. And I remember this because when I read the case, I had no no idea uh, what filled milk was.
0: Yes, that is correct. Filled milk is milk reconstituted with other fats, usually to keep it cheaper. Uh, In this case, it was coconut oil. And the dispute involved a federal law that banned the shipment of filled milk in interstate commerce.
1: Now, is milk a food, GC?
0: It is, a, it is part of a f- balanced breakfast, Zach.
1: <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. All right. All right. What, do you have, what do you have for me next?
0: <laughs> Number three. The bacon case is not the first bacon to sizzle on Scotus's plate. Uh, GC, uh, how long
1: did it take you to come up with that one?
0: <laughs> Actually, it was spontaneous. I'm quite proud of it. Oh, well, well
1: <laughs> you, you, I guess you should be. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you, Zach. I'm going to take that and not look too hard at it. There was another Bacon case, also out of California, which purported to set standards at federally inspected slaughterhouses. Now, I won't ask you to name the case because it's obscure, but instead, can you guess what the issue was? I guess
1: it's something that would impact my ability to get bacon (laughs) at an affordable price, uh, which I'm not a fan of. uh, But I, I don't know the case, GC. What is it?
0: It was National Meat Association versus Harris, and unlike the current Bacon case, the issue was preemption. Justice Kagan wrote for a unanimous court holding that California's law was preempted by federal regulations of slaughterhouses.
1: Ah, Very interesting.
0: All right, Zach. Last question. Can you name at least two other breakfast foods that have appeared before SCOTUS? Well, I'm going to guess eggs uh, as one. That is correct. Uh, We had Hippolyte Egg Company versus the United States, which involved 50 very old cans of preserved eggs that had gone bad.
1: Okay, Uh, and I'm also, uh, are we using a loose definition of food again, GC?
0: Again, if it is part of a complete and balanced breakfast, it counts, Zach.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know if this is uh, part of a complete and balanced breakfast, and I would suspect it might not be. But I think there was actually a case uh, several years ago involving pomegranate juice, wasn't it?
0: Yes, well done. That is Palm Wonderful versus Coca-Cola. Uh, a case that involved allegedly deceptive labeling on Palms pomegranate blueberry juice. Any other breakfast foods or components of a complete and balanced breakfast you'd like to guess, Zach? I think there was also a case about jam, wasn't there? Yes, well, specifically imitation jam. Uh, The wonderfully amusing name of that case is 62 cases, more or less, each containing six jars of jam and others, assorted flavors, net weight, five pounds, three ounces versus United States.
1: Well, I'm glad I didn't have to say that five times fast. (laughs) Uh, Also, GC, we need to talk one day about what's the difference between a jelly, a jam, a preservative.
0: It all gets very murky to me Ah, (laughs) once we start going down that path. I encourage listeners or you to read uh, 62 cases more or less uh, because it all turns on – the weird and arcane statutory definitions of these foods set by the Food and Drug Administration. So it was imitation jam only insofar as it did not comply with the very specific quantities of components of fruit, sugar, etc., that make jam uh, legally jam, although I'm sure we would have considered the imitation jam to be jam by any reasonable definition.
1: GC, you certainly seem to be a jam and jelly Uh, expert (laughs) over here.
0: (laughs) All right. The final breakfast food before SCOTUS is sugar. This case is, again, one of the many fun food-named cases, United States versus 84 boxes of sugar. And before any of our listeners write in to say sugar is not a breakfast food, may I remind you that Zach is from the South, where, yes, it is.
1: (laughs) But by your own previous definition, GC, I don't know if it's part of a balanced (laughs) breakfast. And... Uh, No self-respecting Southerner would put sugar on their grits, uh, which is the quintessential breakfast food. (laughs) Noted. (laughs) Well, that's it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star
0: rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows.
1: And don't forget to take our listener survey, which you can find on our Twitter feed at SCOTUS101.
0: Case is submitted.
2: You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.